0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week on our panel, we have François Bertrand. Howdy. We also have Ben Wilson. Hello there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. If my throat sounds scratchy, it's because the air quality here in Utah is awful right now. And I've been breathing in Utah, so that's the way that goes. We have a special guest this week, and that's Alexey Grigorov. Hello. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself real quick, Alexey? people know who you are, why you're awesome? Yeah. Uh,
1: so I am awesome because, uh, well, a number of things, I guess. <laughs> so, well, a few words about me. So I work as a principal data scientist at Olex Group. So Olex Group is a, well, it's a company, it's an online market, marketplace. So it's a place where you go to sell things or buy things, buy used things. So I work there as a principal data scientist. The principal data scientist means that... I don't code as much anymore, so I'm mostly doing uh, a lot of meetings, a lot of alignment meetings. Uh, So the focus I have right now at Toilix is I'm helping data scientists be more effective, so they focus on data science and they don't worry about all this infrastructure stuff. So it's about like how do they go about deploying things, how do they go about what are the best tools for doing certain things, what are the best processes, like how things should happen so this is something i am helping with i also have a hobby this is called data talks club which is a community of people who uh, love data and there i'm like a sort of community manager doing pretty much everything from uh, i don't know everything that you can imagine because i'm the only one who is running that thing yeah and this is a cool place so we have uh, slack we have podcast we have youtube uh, channel and yeah it's a great place check it out That sounds like fun.
0: Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, and you said that you have a a video on from software engineer to machine learning. And yeah, I know that we get asked about that. Uh, ben said that he gets asked for it. You said it's a pretty popular video. So why don't we just dive into that and talk about how people can make that transition? You know, if you're writing code for a living. You're thinking, oh, this looks like a, an interesting place for me to go and apply my trade in a different way. Yeah, what does that transition look like?
1: Yeah, so I can tell you how it looks like for me. So uh, my original background is databases. So I learned at university. So I learned how to program. I learned how to design databases. And then my first job was about, like it was in Java. So I was doing usual software engineering and stuff. And then I worked at a bank, working again a lot with databases, with Java, with Oracle, all this kind of stuff. And then I watched this Coursera course about machine learning. And this is what got me excited. It was quite uh, a while ago. It was 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe not like now there are more modern, maybe I would say, courses. But this is what got me excited. So that course and then a bunch of other things. So then I did, I tried to get in uh, data science and machine learning with just that. So with my experience in Java and with my, the bits that I picked up uh, during, doing courses. Back then it wasn't enough like it wasn't enough people would say hey you don't have a phd everything in our team has a phd in mathematics or physics so go get a phd and then come back and we'll talk right things like that don't happen anymore these days right so people are not attached to uh, like they don't care if you have a degree or not like they only care if you can do the things it wasn't the case back then when I was transitioning, so I decided to go uh, to do a master's first. Just a, um, just a,
2: a real quick thing on yeah. what you just said. That's interesting to me because I'm, I'm more into my main field is video games and I do visualization, data visualization, which is just on the one aspect of machine learning. But that's very surprising because I would have thought that as the field matures you need more formal credentials. And before, I would have I would have thought it might have been flipped, right? Back in the day, if you could show something great, then, oh, that's great. This is a new thing. We need, uh, you know, a crack at this. And then, but, you know, now that it's more formal, you they're looking at, yeah, formal credentials. But it's interesting how that's, that's kind of the
1: opposite. Yeah. Maybe uh, my opinion. So the way I think about this is, so back then, people had no idea what they want. So they just, okay, data science is about math and formulas, So maybe we need to get somebody who is good about that, right? But now these days people know concretely, like they know what they want and they know that machine learning is a lot about coding. So it's a lot about programming. And now people have experience doing these things, putting these things to production. They know what is important for the job and what is not. So now they actually, they know that having a PhD is not like, it's a good signal, but it's not a must like it's not a deciding factor when
0: you're uh, thinking whether you should hire somebody or not but the important I have an example are, of this there yeah. was a, a few years ago there was a company huge company they decided they that they were going to use Ruby on Rails and so they put up the job brick and they said they wanted 10 years of Ruby on Rails well it turned out there was only one person in the whole world that had 10 years of Ruby on Rails it was the guy that created it and they <laughs> called him up and they said looks like you have 10 years of Ruby on Rails and he laughed in their face and then he, outed them in a talk at RailsConf. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, that, yeah they, they do make those requirements and they do make them ignorantly. But yeah, for lack I mean, of anything else, they do it.
3: Yeah, back in the day <clears> with data science work, it was almost required that you needed somebody with that, that background though. There weren't high-level APIs that were readily available. You know, you go back 12, 15 years ago, everybody was called something different than a data scientist, that, that coin term demanding. came along. Yeah. yeah, it'd be like, you're a statistician or you're working in just the analytics department, but they would be, those people back then that were called that would be called data scientists today. And sometimes it, it was novel algorithm development. So if you don't have that foundation in math or in physics, to be able to, to craft that and the computing systems that some of the stuff was running on for the production ML back in the day required you know, a hybrid team of software developers and and statisticians and pure math people. But yeah, nowadays, anybody can kind of learn it, which is kind of cool. So yeah, the, the requirements are laxed, except for some industries, which still require that.
1: Yeah, so I was like, you're right, Then, So like if we talk about pioneers in data science, like they really needed to do this cutting edge stuff, right? So they really needed mm-hmm. to have people who, t- who have... PhDs, right? To be able to do that, but they I'm talking to be about able to... to invent the pieces that didn't yeah, exist. Yeah, exactly. Yet. But I'm talking about usual companies who just heard that back then it becomes sort of like it maybe started this hype cycle, like this data science and machine learning. Maybe also because of Andrew Ng's course, I, I don't know. But they just heard, okay, this is something cool, but we have no idea who we need to hire. And we heard that uh, you know there are math and formulas, so let's hire, let's get a bunch of people with PhD. Just throw some money at them and uh, let them do some magic. And then a few years after that, it turned out that it doesn't work like that. You can throw money on them, but like it's not enough to just get a bunch of smart people and uh, some budget. You also need to have some engineers, right? You also need to have business people. Like They shouldn't work in isolation. They shouldn't be just sitting in their room doing research. They should be connected to the company. All these things now we understand, but but I don't know. 10 years ago, it wasn't clear, right? And I think I got lucky that I, when I graduated, when I did my master's, when I finished my master's, people realized that usual small companies like not Googles and Facebooks, but small companies in Berlin, I'm based in Berlin, they realized that what is important, what is more important, and maybe these credentials are less important. And then I'm talking around now, uh, I graduated in 2015. So it was a lot easier to get into data science, uh, you know, with just a good portfolio, right? And yeah, maybe actually my recommendation for those who are interested in making the switch now, so all you need to do, or maybe uh, like, it sounds like it's not too much, but it's uh, maybe difficult. All you need to do is have a good portfolio. Like it takes time to to build a portfolio, right? But I think this is, uh, this is what you should have, right? A good portfolio. Doesn't matter if you got this portfolio like from university or from doing freelance projects or it's just your pet projects or this is something you do at work. But if you have like, I would quote it quotes, like solid record of applying machine learning, it can be through pet projects or it doesn't matter. If you can talk about your projects, if, if you can say, okay, I did this, this, and this because reasons, then... Like it improves your chances of getting hired, even though maybe you don't have any formal background at all. Yeah. So maybe to answer your original question, uh, like how would software engineers transition to machine learning? So for me, it was I needed to go through formal training, but I think it's less important now. And the more important is uh, that you can demonstrate that you can actually do this thing, right? So now for transitioning, I would focus effort on that not like picking up ton of textbooks in the library and then digging through them and memorizing all these formulas but you know actually doing hands on stuff
2: um, I'm assuming I haven't looked for a job recently in the data science but are there barrier requirements that you shouldn't be afraid of of circumventing like saying oh we're trying to hire this guy you know th- for this position and we need a bachelor's degree or whatever you know these kinds of things are these you know no like roadblocks should you should you still go for it
1: so the way i think about this is when you write a job description you have an ideal person in mind right somebody who's like who somebody who who checks uh, all the boxes right it's their uh, the ideal candidate and the way i think about this is uh, this ideal candidate often doesn't exist right so the ideal candidate knows like all the math, right? So not just basic classical machine learning, but also like maybe an expert in deep learning. They know not just so they're that. They're thinking but... of me, but there's only one of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, yeah, if it's just you, then uh, you're probably employed now. And uh, yes, yeah, so mm-hmm. where are they going to get uh, the next year? Well, they have to lower the, the requirements, right? So maybe mm-hmm. not all the boxes are ticked, but maybe some of them. And so i'm thinking about uh, when i think about this i just i just treat this as uh, everything is non-essential like if you tick at least some of the boxes it's already good and you just apply right and then uh, because there is a big shortage of candidates anyways there's high chances that maybe the company if they've been hiring for some time they saw the candidates uh, most of them weren't qualified and if now you up and say hey i actually know how to import scikit learn and you know i I know what is cross validation what's the difference difference between i don't know training and uh, validation set and i also know how to import xgboost that's maybe like i don't know
3: 19th percentile already so yeah yeah some of those job requirements are i always find them kind of funny when i see contacted via LinkedIn or personal email all the time. Like, hey, we have this position, and here's the requirements. And then I look up the company, and I look at the requirements, and I look at it again, think about what the job is, and I just sort of chuckle to myself. Like, I mean, I gracefully decline their their invitation, but it's amusing to me thinking that they would think that they would be able to afford somebody that could actually check all those boxes, and. Sometimes it's a you know small startup. There's like maybe thirty or forty people working there. Like you have the same requirements that Google and and Facebook do for their ML engineering team. And it's like there's no way you're going to compete with them. So yeah, <laughs> no company is actually looking for that candidate. And if they do get that candidate and they can afford them, you should be a suspect of that candidate. Like what are they running away from that they would accept this job offer? If they all that <laughs> stuff. <laughs>
2: you mentioned uh, portfolio pieces it's funny how that's very similar again to to video games where you know i for 15 years i've been telling people yeah the best thing to to get a job is just do your own project and have something that's that's great also focusing it's better to have one great thing than 10 mediocre ones i'm not sure that's how that translates it's all trans- the same for
0: web too by the way
2: yeah it's it's so i wonder how that does that translate to ml because it's not as flashy probably as web and uh, video game developments but like is a, a pet project if you're starting out you probably don't have a whole list of clients to, to you can point to I
1: mean if you think about this yes one big project is better than 10 mediocre ones and but I would say that 10 mediocre ones or I wouldn't use the word mediocre but maybe 10 like just 10 projects doesn't mean that like maybe 10 small projects is better that than no projects right and most of um, people who are trying to transition right now, they took some courses they maybe bought a couple of books theoretical books like deep learning and uh, you know uh, elements of statistical learning these are good books they're excellent books if we're talking about theory and so maybe some of them also work through some of the books solve the exercises and the portfolio they have is that right so they read the books and they know how to derive all these formulas this is cool this is very interesting and i really enjoyed doing this during masters but none of the employers care about this oh unless maybe it's deep mind or something but like if you talk about uh, an average company in an industry they don't care about all these formulas all they care about these projects and uh yeah so i mentioned that 10 projects 10 small projects is better than uh all that because you can just take something small, like, I don't know, go to Kaggle, find a, a competition there, do this competition, and you already have one project in your portfolio. It doesn't have to be a great project. You don't have to score, like, to end in gold with a gold medal. Even if you end up in, I don't know, top 30%, which is like, uh, I don't know, on three position number 300. It doesn't really matter. What matters is what you learned while doing this right and if you can uh, like if you can explain what the problem is what kind of data set uh, it is what kind of feature engineering you did why you use this model and the most important part in Kaggle is how you set up all these cross-validation things i think this is already this is already great and if you do this for a couple of projects like for three for four for different ones so let's say take one where it's, uh, I don't know, a regression problem, then take another that is a classification problem, then take another with, that has maybe some natural text uh, in English or in some other, maybe take another that has some images there. And you have four different projects that, uh, that are already, that look quite great on your portfolio. And yeah, and already, like you can already... Relate to like let's say if you have an interview and they ask you a certain question, then you can think, okay, wait a minute, it's very similar to that uh, competition on Kaggle I did, and you can start talking about this, and then you basically impress everyone, right? So do Kaggle, that's a great source of uh, of projects. People do critique Kaggle a lot, so it doesn't teach you a lot of things, but it does teach you this core kind of modeling and feature engineering, this kind of thing. And then of course, like You can also do other projects. Let's say you see that a company needs to, like one of the requirements is AWS, I don't know, SageMaker or whatever, just some technology, right? So what you can do is you can just allocate 10 hours of your time and think what is the smallest project you can do with this technology and just go and do this and then do a write-up and then you have your thing in your portfolio and something that you can talk about. I think this is also good. To have, even though it's not an end to end thing, or maybe it's an end to end thing, but a small one. But again, you do this for, I don't know, three, four, five things. And then all of a sudden you can talk about many different technologies. And you have this background that you picked on Kaggle. And if, if you have 10, like a bunch of projects, like 10 projects like that, then I don't think anyone would not want to
3: hire you. So speaking of hiring, when, if there's any hiring managers listening in to this, or people that are that are in a, a role as a team lead of as a data scientist somewhere, what would you say that is the the argument for bringing on a software developer to a data science team when you're serious about creating production ML? Slapping the job title ML engineer on them and saying, hey. You've done a couple of things. You you understand the basics of supervised and unsupervised learning. You maybe done a deep learning project. How do you find that that communicates to the value of bringing, say, an experienced, say, Java software developer onto an ML team, helping them write better code? Like, what do you see that that is a benefit? I mean, like, let's say if the team doesn't have an ML
1: engineer yet, right? Or like maybe there is a bunch of data scientists, but you can Mm -hmm. just show the the number of incidents the team had, uh, like in production, and uh, show okay, like imagine if there was a good software engineer who who would uh, teach all these data scientists good engineering practices, and I think it's a good argument. Like it's not that difficult to convince because teams realize, data scientists realize that they are not the best engineers and that's it's not their job to be great engineers, uh, to be perfect software engineers, right? They need to write some code. But it's nice to have somebody who can actually show them, to, to teach them best practices, to actually not just teach, but um, show how to do this and do this mm. and uh, make sure that these practices are followed. Like I'm talking about things like having a CI, CD pipeline, uh, having tests, uh um, you know, like these standards of pre engineering stuff that, uh, you know, every software engineer knows. But when it comes to data science, very few data scientists follow that, that. And, uh, and the core thing here, I guess, uh, like the core argument, if that person, a software engineer already knows the, like already knows some machine learning. So that person can talk to data scientists, uh, in the same, like, They speak the same language, basically, so they understand each other. And uh, yeah,
2: no, I think that's a great angle for somebody who's on the outside. You're not, you know, you're saying to kind of play up, play up the overall engineering skills, uh, software engineering skills. Saying, okay, I've only got these couple projects, personal projects, and ML, but here's what I bring to the table with regard to my other experience or uh, training. uh, You know, as far as you know, yeah, general engineering skills. That's that's a good. It's an interesting uh, angle to,
1: to add to the mix. Yeah, maybe I can tell. Um, so the, the first job in data science I got, it was a job uh, as a data scientist. My official title was data scientist. But I suspect that the only reason I was hired is because I knew Java and I knew some machine learning, right? And the team, they really struggled with Java, right? So the way it worked is the data scientist would develop something in R or Python, but uh, back then it was uh, you know a lot of R code, and then they would uh, give it to engineering team, saying, "Hey, like we have this <laughs> awesome product, like everyone loves it, let's implement this." And then when a Java developer from the other floor looks at this, looks at this R code, that is uh, you know just a zip archive that you sent over email. I'm just speculating. <laughs> I don't know if this thing actually happened, but uh, like, I know that you know it was a bunch of air code. It was very difficult to productionize and the entire engineering team spent ages trying to replicate it. And I think they just understood that they needed somebody with Java background who would be able to kind of relate uh, with uh, like talk the same language with the Java engineers and maybe just do Git clone their project and integrate already the the data science solution there i suspect that is the only reason i was hired because i knew java and i seem to be not completely useless when it comes to machine learning so i knew a couple of things and yeah i think that is the reason uh, they were interested in me
2: that's interesting it's uh it's almost—it's not so much switching to machine learning as almost like Trojan horsing your way in with your other skills and getting a foothold, and then expanding the machine learning aspect. That's a,
1: yeah, that's a good way of putting this. And actually, um, Charles mentioned at the beginning that there is a video on my channel about that. So that in that video, I did the interview. I interviewed uh, Santiago. Maybe you know Santiago. He's—he's—he uh, has a lot of followers on Twitter. Anyway, so he also has uh, like his, uh, he also has this background, and the way he put it, I really like it. So the way he put it is, you don't switch as a software engineer. You don't switch to machine learning. You add machine learning to your portfolio. Mm-hmm. So you still stay software engineer. You just add another tool in your set. And I really like this metaphor. This is how you should think about if you want to start doing machine learning. You don't switch. You just learn and. use your existing skills to do machine learning, right? So you don't switch completely. You don't start from scratch.
0: Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium.
3: Yeah, at premium jobs that I've had, that's actually how I learned how to develop was by either requesting resources or directly just telling management, like, hey, I'm taking this person for the next two years, get over it. Because um, they're really good at, you know, Scala or Java or whatever language we were writing our, our code in. And I just paired with them and learned as much as I could, but also taught them. So we were both growing at the same time, me learning more about software development. They're learning more, more about ML, and that's something that I recommend to my clients today. When they're like, "Hey, we're struggling to get ML in production. We, you know, we have these issues that come up during crafting this particular project solution, and we don't want to hire consultants for every little thing. So, what should I do?" And I, I tell them the same thing every time: like, just get your get a good developer. You don't need your best developer at your company because they're busy doing other stuff, keeping the lights on. But get somebody who has a lot of potential and promise and who is passionate, that is personable and can, can work with this team. And you just look for somebody who's hungry, who wants to
0: grow, and then embed them in the team and watch magic happen. Yeah, I indeed. think that's important too because I've been trying to keep this comment back because it's not very nice. But I've worked with some software developers that don't follow best practices right. That don't do do things right. No. You know, that they, they just they just at the end of the day, you know. Oh, work ship it right, and then somebody else has the maintenance nightmare later on. And yeah, I love the way you put it because you know that developer that's hungry, that wants to learn, that wants to grow, that wants to to do more. Those are usually the people that are out there learning how to write code that's maintainable, learning how to write code that will deploy well, that will stand up to. Some, some abuse, some things that they didn't foresee, you know, that, that are that, that's going to do what you need it to do and will work well with things that they don't 100% understand. Yeah, and I think it's really
3: important as well with professions that focus on highly technical skills, data science and software developers is something that I try to do continually wherever I go in whatever group I work in and whatever company. Is always try to find somebody who knows more than you do, who is willing to to both learn and teach, and then have that person be your challenger at all times. And I've it's just so happened that over the last dozen or so years in my career, that person has always been a developer. It's been different developers, but it's always been somebody that can be like, hey, I've looked at your code and there's this unstated elegance about it. Can you please just teach me how to do what it is that you do? I even do it today. I have a couple of people at Databricks in the field that it's just like playing jazz, like improv jazz with people when you start talking through a problem. You know, you're challenging one another. And because you're coming from these different backgrounds, come from a pure engineering background, like pure sciences, engineering background, and then people that are coming from computer science background, we think about problems in different ways and that complements one another. So I I always see it it's a success when somebody does exactly what you did Alexi. Just like hey, you come from this this developer background and you're you're coming into this field and sharing so much knowledge about best practices and how to do this while at the same time you're growing as well. Just just awesome.
1: It's also I guess I should shout out to uh... The manager, the hiring manager back then at uh, SearchMetrics, who I think uh, he needed to push that to, I don't know, like, first of all, he understood what kind of person the team needs and then hire Mm -hmm. uh, that person. But then also maybe convince others, like, that this is the kind of profile the team needs. So the team doesn't need another PhD, right? The team maybe needs uh, an engineer. So that's also good that there are people like that in the industry now, and now there are more and more of them that understand that it's not at the end; it's not just about formulas and and math. It's also about uh, you know being able to duct tape a bunch of open source uh, uh, libraries in a way that doesn't fall apart, and then hide it uh, so nobody sees it. Like and it looks nice. I think it's also an art, right, uh, to be able to do that. And we need people like that uh, now a lot because that's those who actually deliver things to production. Like it's engineering, right? So using uh, these all open source tools and knowing their limitations and uh, things like this. This is, uh, this is not something we learn at school when we study machine learning, right? You only learn this by uh, doing, by practicing, by trying things. And yeah, that's where, at least this is how I see it's, this is there where the industry is now. And I think it's now easier than ever for software engineers to enter the industry. Yeah. Maybe in the future it will change. I think now there are, I see the trend of these no-code tools or low-code tools, uh, how to say, maybe tools that democratize AI, democratize machine learning. I hope to see more tools like that, that make it a lot easier for people without a lot of engineering skills to also use machine learning. But so far, I think in the industry, like industry really favors software engineers with some basic ML skills because they need to do a lot of stuff.
3: And yeah, so I think yeah. that's now it's that's a good time. I think it really depends when we're talking about production ML, mm-hmm. how many developers you would need to mix into the group based on what your company is actually doing and what that use case is. So there's a massive difference between doing a cron scheduled to say XGBoost model or random forest model. You have your training data, you create your model, you're validating it. You're just scheduling that to run at two 2.17 a.m. every day. There's not a lot of complexity in the architecture and engineering implementation of that. Even if you do full unit tests, you have an integration test, you're, you're doing statistical validation, you're doing attribution modeling on top of all of that, you even have A-B testing with cohort determination for that batch prediction. Most data science teams can handle that with the existence of a, a data engineer or you know somebody who used to be a developer. But that all changes when you're now saying, hey, we're an e-commerce site. We have a REST API. We need to support burst traffic of 450,000 requests a minute. And if this the front-end development team is like, hey, we're busy doing stuff on the app. We don't have time to support this infrastructure. What do you see as, as the need for... That next level of production ML, when you go from the that small, simple batch stuff where you're writing to an LTP table, all the way to large scale, how does that shift the team dynamic and, and makeup?
1: You just throw in a lot more engineers, I guess, and then. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know if there is a simple answer to, to that. But uh, I think the more. Uh, like maybe if you're a startup, the proportion between data scientists and engineers can be, I do know, one-to-one. But the more mature the company becomes, uh, like the fewer data scientists you need and the more engineers you need, right? Uh, and I think, uh, like when I think about Elix, for example, the company where I work now, we don't have that many data scientists. So most of our, uh, uh, like we call it, product and tech organization, like all this uh, R&D, that is not support. Like I, don't know, I think ninety percent are developers, and uh, probably every company is like that, right? Uh, I mean, if we're not talking about a startup, so we need. Uh, usually, we need a lot more developers and people who know, like I don't know, all these Kubernetes things or whatever, like things that can handle these spikes of traffic, right? Data scientists don't know that stuff usually, so you need to have somebody who knows that, and yeah, you just get them from other team, or if they're busy, I guess you'll need to hire them and you put them together and uh, you work for a couple of years till uh, there. Yeah, <laughs> so
3: I don't know if that was the answer you were looking forward to. So what do you think was was more trivial to learn? Was it applications of data science models for solving problems or just writing ETL? A lot of data science work that you do, mm-hmm. particularly the more senior that you are, is sometimes a lot of ETL work and data transformations and feature engineering. So what was more natural to, to lean into for you? Yeah, well, for me, it was like, if it's
1: code, then it's uh, easier, right? And all these ETLs, ETL jobs is code. I wouldn't say trivial, I don't know, trivial, maybe if you look at each individual piece like separately, then it's trivial, but when you put everything <laughs> together and you look back and see, wow, I did so many things, then it's not really trivial. But yeah, like everything, like a lot of work in data science, okay, I would say maybe 90% of work is engineering work. And for engineers, uh, they maybe what they need to do is become comfortable with speaking this language. They need to understand, okay, what is cross-validation? And uh, like if they see a formula, they shouldn't uh, get scared. It takes some time, but yeah, I guess uh, like coding is natural and uh, all these CTL things, all this, uh, you know, deploying stuff or connecting different, like, I don't know, you use Learn, you need to connect it uh, somewhere, you need to schedule it to run on the cloud. All this is engineering work. And it was somewhat
3: easy, but also, like, it took a lot of trials and errors to, to know how to do this, right? What about project development? When you're talking about, you'd walk into a data science team that's comprised entirely of PhDs, like mm-hmm. of, like, traditional data scientists. As a first developer walking in there, you see them approaching project work as, well, we're, we're going to work on this. We're going to experiment. And you see no artifact for six months. You just see a bunch of notebooks with a bunch of things that people are testing and commented out code, print line statements everywhere. And how do you shift the team that's, that's doing that waterfall style, mm-hmm. sort of post-grad research style work? into agile into scrum yeah. so when you were saying that this is exactly metaphor i was uh, thinking
1: about like waterfall exactly so data science i think like six seven years ago at least in europe in berlin it was in this waterfall mode most of the time right so the companies were you know, would have a separate data science department that would produce notebooks and then the Management would get excited and then these notebooks would go to the engineering team and then engineering team would struggle for half a year to productionize it. And things shift now to more product teams. And I think this is how you should approach it. Is you try to, instead of putting everyone like in silos, I think this is uh, the term you've been used in um, our previous conversation. Like we should try to break these silos, right? We shouldn't have a separate data science team that just... Does the magic produce something that is very hard to integrate? You try to put everyone together. So you take a software engineer, you take an analyst, you take a front-end engineer, and you form a sort of a task force. So let's say for a next project that you want to do that involves data science, just take somebody from your data science team, like maybe one data scientist or two, take a couple of engineers from your engineering team, take a Product manager, that's very important because somebody needs to, you know, make sure that uh, these people are not just having fun, but actually solve real problems because engineers have problems with that, right? So engineers like to have fun and uh, not, it's difficult. I know for me, it's difficult to to think of a user first instead of, oh, there's this new shiny framework. So you need a, to have a product manager. Hey, I resemble that comment. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. So, <laughs>
1: yeah, you put everyone together and in the same room, and you start thinking, okay, how do we approach this problem? So, from the very beginning, right? So, if it's a greenfield project, then you collect this like you get together a task force, you put everyone in one room, and you start brainstorming. And then, uh, yeah, so what you need to, to have at the end is everyone is working on the same problem. It's not like first uh, the data science team develops something, then they throw it over a wall to engineering. No. It's like a data scientist together with an engineer write production code from the very beginning.
2: It's like vertical integration of knowledge.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe production code from the beginning is too strong requirement, but at least like have everyone involved in experimenting and then uh, productionizing this experiment put everyone on the same stand-up, right? So you know what engineers are doing, you know what kind of problems they have. Engineers know what kind of problems data scientists have. And I've seen that work pretty well in the companies that had uh, siloed teams. And yeah, I think this is a Really great way to start and then you form more and more task forces and then eventually you don't have this central data science team anymore and then everyone works in a cross-functional pack, so to say, and uh, yeah, it's really great. And then at some point I also saw that eventually what happens is the company is working in this uh, cross-functional functional teams, right? And then suddenly there is again a central team appearing that you see that these teams tend to repeat things. And then maybe there is a central team again that tries to be the common denominator and uh, try to uh, take care of all this uh, repeated stuff. This is where, uh, by the way, oil exists. So now we have uh, all these cross-functional teams and we have a central team that kind of helps with the platform. So in a way, I hope we're
3: not back to Waterfall, but
1: let's see how it goes.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I can't state enough just how successful that paradigm can be at companies. I've lived through it where some of my early projects, which were done in in silos and kind of in this dank basement in the company where they're like, oh, all the nerds are down there. But once working in a company that takes ML seriously, you start working with this cross functional group. At first, you don't even realize who you're going to learn things from or some of their insights, how that's going to inform how you approach ML in general. Some of the most clever things that I've learned about how to create like final payloads for supervised learning predictions have come from front-end developers, JavaScript people. They're like, hey, you shouldn't create a payload like that because it'll be more efficient for me to do a traversal through this collection if you create it in this way. I'm like, oh, I didn't even think of that. So I should just generate more of these you know, these elements so that you don't ever have an empty pane on the, your app. So it, that close working relationship is just invaluable for project work, I think.
1: Yeah, otherwise, if it's different teams, then your communication is at best Jira tickets. Like, yeah. hey, let's make payload look like that, and then maybe you pick up this ticket in two weeks. But if, if people are on the same team, then this front-end engineer will just come to you, right, and say, hey, like I don't like the way you send payload now because it's difficult for me. Can you quickly change it and then you at the same like at the same time like when uh, you just go and change it, right? Because it doesn't take a lot of time for you to do mm-hmm. this. And yeah, this like this is really great. I, I'm really a big fan of cross
0: functional teams. Yeah. I'm gonna push this to picks because uh, we're under some time constraints, but I think this has been a really positive conversation, Alexi, if people want to reach out to you and ask you more questions or follow what you're working on, how do they find you? So
1: the best way is to join Data Talks Club, which is an awesome community of data people. And I'm sticking around there, actually, because I'm sort of an admin of that Slack. Every time somebody joins using my invite link, I get a notification. So I will see if somebody is joining. So feel free to ping uh, me there. And yeah, so don't forget to say hi in the welcome channel. And yeah, and just write me there. There are more, I would say, traditional channels. Yes, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just put my name and you'll find me. Then I'm also on Twitter. Is Al underscore Grigor. Uh, because like I created my Twitter account relatively recently. So all the good names were taken. So I had to,
0: <laughs> uh,
1: to put some uh, nonsense that very really difficult to uh, to say. Yeah, I guess if you just go to Google, put my name on Twitter, you'll find me. Yeah, that's probably yeah Data Talks Club and LinkedIn and Twitter are the best ways to reach out. to
0: me. All right, good deal. Well, let's go ahead and do some pics real quick. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become 1 in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Francois, do you want to start
2: us off? Sure. Mine's a, a bit of a soft pick, but it's just after I, I'd i been... Uh coding in the in the in the quiet for, for maybe the past 10-15 years and I've rediscovered ambiences. You can pretty much code to anything. You can as far as audio, right? So I just go to you I discovered I can go to YouTube and just type ambience whatever. And it's it's a really nice uh, maybe it was because of the pandemic you feel more alone, but there's things like coffee shop ambience, space station, underwater station, you know, any type of music jazz whatever it's just something that i forgotten existed somehow and i stumbled upon it and it's really nice there's a the cliche of being at the beach whatever but there's pretty much everything and it's it, it's kind of nice give some variety from from working from home all the time and in, in the same kind of setting you just uh, cut out everything and you can pretty much be anywhere whatever there's some really interesting ones where there's a coffee shop and you can actually overhear conversations there's a few comments on the on the video that say this is probably illegal but yeah the person you know you're in that, some college coffee shop and there's crazy conversations about projectile vomit and things like that it's just really funny but yeah it's that one's a bit distracting but yeah just General ambiences, if you're looking to spice up a bit or, you know, a ch- bit of change of pace from your uh, the ambience you're working from,
3: that's that's kind of nice. Yeah, I'd agree. Projectile vomit is a bit distracting in general. <laughs> ben, what are your picks? Uh, my pick is pretty relevant, actually, to today's discussion coming into this. I didn't even know we were going to be talking about this topic, but I've been doing a lot of mentoring recently and uh, specifically mentoring of people that come from a data engineering background. And they want to know, like, learn ML. They want to be able to apply machine learning. They don't really need to know the theory behind algorithms, which is how most data scientists learn it when you're coming straight out of school or mathematicians would learn it. But I've been using our guest's book to actually do some of that teaching because of the way that Alexi approaches instruction in machine learning book camps which is a Manning book that uh, he's written. I've been going through it and kind of seeing that perspective of how to communicate, getting started from a developer slash data engineer's perspective. And I got to tell you, Alexi, it's actually shortening my mentoring time down by at least 80% uh, because I have all these examples that I can use to show somebody, don't worry, they're going to get a copy of the book as well. But uh, it's, it's just helping me read through that and see a different teaching style than what I typically do with people. And it just, it works. So it's Thanks. a great book. Yeah,
1: maybe I would like to add to that, that my book is about to go out to be published. And uh, what I want to do is I want to do a free course, online course, well, based on the book uh, starting in September. So you can already register. And yeah, if you're the kind of person who needs... Uh, to, you know, have a schedule, to learn something, to have a course, then the course is, it starts in September. It's called Machine Learning Zoom Camp. I thought that it's, uh, since uh, there is Book Camp, then maybe a Zoom Camp is also, I think. So yeah, check it out. I don't know. I don't think Google actually, like if you put Machine Learning Zoom Camp in Google, it will try to correct you to Machine Learning Book Camp or some or boot camp. But yeah, so you'll find it also in Data Talks Club. I don't know if it qualifies as a pick, but yeah. Uh, thanks, Ben.
0: Yeah, and we did a quote-unquote book camp for JavaScript last year. And it was based on some books that Kyle Simpson had written about JavaScript. So I saw that and I kind of smiled at myself because I, I, I love the term. So anyway, I'm going to throw in some picks real quick. One is, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but I'm doing these Q&A slash training sessions every week so if you're looking for ways to kind of make your career go to the next level uh, you can do that just go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can get in on all of the good stuff there it's like 10 minutes of some kind of training and then we will yeah and then we'll just answer questions do some coaching until you get all your questions answered so Yeah, that's pretty much it. Alexi, do you have some picks for us?
1: Yes, actually, I was thinking, what should I pick? And recently, Ben and I had a conversation. So that time uh, it was different. So I was interviewing Ben and the interview was really great. So we talked about so that it was called it's called training from complexity. And our conversation was about like, how do we make sure that our projects are successful by making them simple first? We don't complicate, uh, we don't start with complex things. And we start with simple things and evolve. And we talk a, l- a lot about uh, like a bunch of uh, things. Some of these things we talk today, like about silo team. Uh, we talk about things like also the IKEA effect is like when you get attached to things you build. It's a really great episode. I really enjoyed talking to Ben. So that's my pick. So check out this, our chat with Ben. And yeah, it's again, if you go to Data Talks Club, there is a section with podcasts and the uh, episode I'm talking about is, run, is called "Training from Complexity. I'll oh, share a link. So it's uh, really like if, you, if you're looking, if you're thinking how you should spend one hour of your life and you're not sure how exactly, that's like probably the best uh, way to do this. And it's a great, uh, it's... thanks Ben for the chat. It was really great. Oh, thanks Ben. That
0: was fun. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and wrap up here. Uh, Thanks again, Alexi, for coming. And thanks to our panelists. And until next time, folks, Max out. Take it easy. Have a good one. Goodbye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.